Hey, Susanna. Hey, Tavi. How's it going? Very well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. And you? Uh, yeah, I'm doing great. This like February, mid-February energy. I'm starting to feel the first couple of like 50 something days poking through. Yes. I'm very excited about the thaw. So like what's going on in the world of climate this week? Bill McKibben's fantastic newsletter just came out this morning mm. and I have to say it was a little bit inspiring. The subject is revolt of the normals. You know, over in Ottawa, there are all these protesters blockading the road yep. in sort of an anti-vax protest move. And it's really shutting a lot of things down, particularly international trade. A ton of international trade is going through those routes that they've just totally shut down. Yep. And this one guy, a professor at Carleton University up there in Canada, he read that some folks, some of these trucks were on their way to join the protest and they were going to go through his neighborhood to get there. Mm -hmm. And so he just kind of rallied his neighborhood to set up a blockade wow. to stop them from getting to the protest. Oh, wow. And it started out as, you know, a couple dozen people and then more and more people showed up until I think there was like almost a hundred thousand people there blocking the people going to the protest and they just talked to them. Oh. And we're just like, yo, don't do this. You know, like three quarters of Canadians support vaccines. Like, this is not cool. You're shutting everything down. Like, please go home. And they were successful. Like, they oh, just nice. talked to the people who were going to protest, had a nice conversation with them, made them give up their racist flags and yes. the jerry cans of gasoline that they were bringing to the bigger protest and made them all go home. That's a great news story. I also know our neighbor who lives just down the road from us, Zoanne Murphy. She's a phenomenal journalist with the Washington Post. She's out there covering it right now. And what's interesting is her story, one of her stories uh, of the past week covering that protest was actually honestly about the normals that were trapped up in this crazy struggle, like their entire sort of communities, the residential communities that are near enough to where the protests are happening have been choked out by 18 wheelers, like idling their engines, blasting carbon into the air. And just the noise and fracas of this like ongoing nonsensical protest. So yeah, I, I'm really glad to see that Bill's covering an angle of de-escalation in these crazy times. That's really, really great. I love it. It's every, everyday people making big impacts on big problems, which is kind of the opposite of what we're talking about today. <laughs> okay. Uh, listener discretion. Suzanne's going to come at this one with full salt. We have got a, a, we've got a whole shaker full. Yes, you're absolutely right, Suzanne, because today the Solar Spill Solutions episode is going to be about carbon capture and storage, a technology that sounds really wonderful for fighting the climate crisis, doesn't it? Doesn't it, Susanna? It does, if you're talking about trees. And with that energy, let's kick off the episode. Doing the intro music dance again for you, for my my visual audience of one. Really, I wish everyone else could see it. We have so these recordings somewhere. I'm not going to tell you where. 
maybe in the mythical cloud cloud okay that's going to be my dad joke transition into carbon capture technology because often clouds of carbon are roaming no this is just terrible. that's yeah that was hard that was, that was that's a stretch what we can say however is that we are not talking about trees in this episode we're talking about attempting to capture carbon with technology or machines or some energy <laughs> intensive process yeah is that yeah, is, is that what we're talking about this is not photosynthesis this is not trees uh what we are talking about when we talk about carbon capture and storage for this episode i'll just call it like ccs for short it is the process of removing co2 from industrial processes such as power plants so the co2 is then transported and placed in long-term storage typically in underground geologic formations the CO2 that's removed can either be taken out before the combustion event occurs, or it can be captured and stored after the combustion event occurs. I'll describe like what the three major types of carbon capture are that are being used today, but actually some of the earliest CCS projects are in natural gas processing. So uh, the Sleipner CO2 storage project in Norway, it's been operating since like 96, captures around 1 million tons of CO2 a year. That sounds great on paper. And then it's injected into a deep saline formation in the North Sea for permanent storage. The saline has a way of basically like holding on a like atomic and chemical level the, the sort of condensed and captured CO2 stream. It just like holds it in a somewhat steady state. Construction is also underway on the first large-scale CCS project in the iron and steel sector. It's the Abu Dhabi CCS project in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. And then there's other sort of advanced CCS projects that include a fermentation project in Illinois, that's in the U.S., and a large liquefied natural gas project in Western Australia. I just want to pause for one second because it sounds like what you're saying is that this technology, carbon capture and storage... It's only something that you do when you're burning fossil fuel. Is that right? It's not something that would just like take carbon out of the atmosphere. It's like at the point of burning fossil fuel. That is where it's most efficient. There are these like carbon points or like carbon production points, geographic locations where the most collection of carbon is produced and shot out. And that tends to be clustered around power plants largely. And it's not just like passive, like if you took the sort of parts per million of carbon that are just like floating around in the air all the time, the technology I'm about to describe really would be super inefficient at capturing those. It's all about capturing them in a stream as they are densely spewing out of like an exhaust of a power plant. It's kind of funny because, you know, there's like trees and plants can do it just like out of the air. They don't right. have to be like right. next to a, a stream spewing it out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Salty. Uh, so. Yes. Yes. You are but yeah. Correct. Tell me, tell me more. Like what are the three types that we're talking about here? So, so like contemporary carbon capture technology that are not trees and leaves. Uh, we're talking about pre-combustion processes, uh, which convert fuel into a gaseous mixture of hydrogen and CO2. Hydrogen is then separated and can be burnt without process uh, producing any additional CO2. The CO2 can then be compressed for transport and storage. So you basically are like chemically separating the elements and then burning the hydrogen, capturing the CO2. Um, the fuel conversion steps required for pre-combustion are like much more complex uh, than the processes involved in post-combustion, which I'm about to describe. And that makes the pre-combustion technology more difficult to apply to like major factories and existing power plants. It's tougher. Okay, so that one, that one, you're actually kind of making like a better burning fuel to begin yes. with. Yes. Okay. Much like uh, if any of our listeners have to like winterize their like outdoor equipment, 
uh, you would add like a, an additional like fuel uh, additive to like your gas and your like lawnmower tank to stabilize it. It's not the same chemical, but it's essentially a similar process of like blending additional chemical elements into your fuels uh, to stabilize certain chemical elements of them. Um, and then, yeah, separates the hydrogen and the CO2, which can then be compressed uh, for transport. So that's pre-combustion. Post-combustion, right? So we're like burning the fuel. We're in that combustion state in the power plants. Post-combustion processes separate CO2 from combustion exhaust gases from the actual gaseous state that we're used to like seeing spewing out of the tailpipe. CO2 can be captured using a liquid solvent or other separation methods. Uh, in an absorption-based approach, one once absorbed by the solvent, the CO2 is released by heating to form a high-purity CO2 stream, which honestly just sounds like a paradox, a high-purity CO2 stream. Uh, this technology is actually widely used to capture CO2 for use in the food and beverage industry. So exhaust is blaring out of the factory, and it passes through a series of filters using these like liquid solvents that act as separators and astringents to pull and separate the CO2 out of that gaseous mix. So essentially gas that is coming out of the exhaust of the factory or the power plant is like some percentage cleaner. Okay. So this is another one where we're burning fossil fuels and then we're cleaning it up, but yeah. we're doing the cleanup after the burn, whereas the other one was we clean it up before the burn. Yeah, exactly. You're noticing okay. a theme here. <laughs> this is I, a lot I of this am noticing yeah. Yeah. It seems to rest upon actually hmm. burning fossil fuels in the first place. Huh. Finally, the uh, the third major sort of category of carbon capture and storage is oxyfuel combustion, and that uses that like those processes use oxygen rather than air for so pure oxygen um, rather than air for combustion of fuel. This produces exhaust gas that is mainly water vapor and CO2 that can then be more easily separated to produce a high purity CO2 stream. This technology is still only in the demonstration phase, so it's actually not even really ready for prime time. Both pre and post combustion uh, processes that I described before are ready for implementation, but they're incredibly expensive to implement, which I'll get into later in the sort of cost section of our analysis. So pre-combustion, post-combustion, oxy-fuel, which is like the new hotness when it comes to carbon capture. Okay. And all three of these require us to burn fossil fuels. Yes. And all three of these require us to then take that compressed carbon and store it somewhere. And generally speaking, there's kind of like four big categories of where this pure CO2, this like high density CO2 is stored. One, it's stored right back in depleted oil and gas reservoirs. And we will kind of get more into that later. It's also uh, injected uh, into deep saline formations. I was mentioning that up top. Basically, something in that chemical makeup of saline stabilizes the CO2, and we'll unpack that whole thing as well a little bit later, but it can hold it for a while. And that's saline solutions uh, formations that are both um, on and offshore. Uh, and then uh, basically, some of this CO2, the sort of remaining two uses for stored CO2 are possibly going to make you even saltier, Susanna. Um, sometimes that CO2 is, well, actually a lot of the time that CO2 is actually used for enhanced oil and gas recovery, and I'm using air quotes here, and then other times that CO2 is used in enhanced coal bed methane recovery. 
I pause for salt. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. What two of the uses for the CO2 that we're taking out are to make more fossil fuels? Yes, I was going to mention that as an X factor, but here we are. I think we do need to sort of put this up front while we're explaining technology. The large majority of the use of the captured CO2 by the fossil fuels industry is to then inject it back into the earth because it's really, really effective at breaking up and finding more oil, gas, and methane to burn as, as, as fuel again. So this is, um, this is what is it? If, if the Lion King had the circle of life, this could be the circle of death. This is using essentially the, the purified and condensed deadly, you know, offals of the <laughs> fossil fuel industry to then produce more of that fuel. Right. Okay. So this solution, <laughs> air quotes, um, is, is going to enable the fossil fuel industry to extract more fossil fuels. Cool, cool, cool. And then the other solution is to just inject it deep into the earth because there's never been any problems with us injecting substances into the earth. That's like a total fail-safe solution for getting rid of things. <laughs> oh, I just, I, it's moments like this where I do wish this was like a, like a YouTube series as well as a podcast because like our faces are pure cringe right now, folks. It's just, it's tough. But I, I will stalwartly do my duty of presenting the case for impact. Let's talk about the impact, potential impact of CCS. Sorry, just before you go to impact, I also just want to say trees don't have this problem with CO2. It like, they they eat the CO2 and they make trees. Like trees make trees out of CO2. <laughs> Not additional gonna, fossil fuels. Yeah, no, totally. Trees they don't really- make more fossil fuels. They don't inject CO2 into underground cavities. Um, well, although they do enhance the carbon absorption of soils. So perhaps in a way you could argue that they're putting it deep into the earth, but in ways that the earth appreciates. Let me out salt your salt. Trees just don't have a multi-million dollar fossil fuel lobby behind them, you know, to make up really cool like factoids and science-based claims like the ones I'm about to make. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the impact, the potential impact of uh, CCS, carbon capture and storage. So like, look, there's a reason why most of these things are based around power plants and major factories. Almost 50% of uh, the greenhouse gas emissions in the United States come directly from energy production, right? Where we get our power and big industry, right? Like where we make our stuff. The biggest advantage of CCS then is its ability to potentially capture CO2 from these point sources, these carbon point sources, and then store it in those geological formations. The International Energy Agency estimates that CCS could be responsible for removing as much as 20% of the total CO2 emissions from industrial and energy production facilities. So look, 20% of the 50%, right? 50% of greenhouse gases are coming directly from these industries. 20% of that 50% would lead to about roughly a 10% total reduction of US uh, greenhouse gas emissions. On paper, great. Like that's good. That's a good, you know, any carbon removal is good. I'm trying to think like, how can we begin to grade the impact here? I started to look at US emissions before the pandemic. And there's solid data to show that U.S. emissions decreased from 2018 to 2019 by about 1.7%. So like that's after accounting for sequestration from the land sector, 
carbon captured by trees as you're sort of putting out there. Um, and hopefully like some good green practices like regenerative agriculture. Uh, and this decrease was driven largely, that 1.7 decrease was driven largely by decreases in emissions from fossil fuel combustion resulting from a decrease in total energy use in 2019 compared to 2018 and a continued shift from coal to natural gas and renewables in the electric power sector. So like in that context, what I'm basically trying to get to is the ultimate like wave of magic wand scenario is the continued program of reduction in consumption through increases in energy efficiency. Like if we can just consume less and year over year start to decrease our carbon output by like 1.7%, we could start to see as we continue to adopt renewable energy sources, Basically, we could make the argument that the technology of CCS would kind of outpace our natural reduction of output by about 9%, right? If it's like 1% one, one to 2% reduction through sort of natural efficiency, then CCS on top of that probably gets about an 8 or 9% increase, um, you know, basically without having to increase the speed of our shift to renewables, our reduction in energy use, whatever. That's pretty good in like a perfect magic wand scenario, but we don't have a magic wand. So let's get real. Like CCS has a pretty glaring impact problem and that's baked right into its main sort of efficacy claim. The technology is most efficient and effective at the source of major carbon emissions, which as we mentioned, centered on the current dirty sources of our energy. And in this way, it seems like contemporary CCS is pretty much reliant upon a global system that continues to run on non-renewable resources. It's like a fancy band-aid that skims up to about 20% of the emissions from the primary sources of this big hulking systemic problem. Yeah. I mean, I just want to go back to that 20% because we're talking about impact here. The International Energy Agency estimates, estimates. that CCS could be responsible for removing as much as 20% of total CO2 emissions from industrial and energy production facilities. So it's not even 20%. They're oh, saying no. like, yeah, maybe it might be as much as on a good day, 20%. Like this, this impact is not very good, no. especially when we compare it to the other things we've talked about already this season. The impact of this is pretty small it is. Um, and it requires us to continue burning fossil fuels, which is the whole reason we're in this problem to begin with. You got so it. I feel like the impact of this is like possibly a zero. It might even be a negative, honestly. Like it might be like a full on F potentially. Like you're talking about that International Energy Agency study is like it's a it's an it's a 20% if we completely retrofit all these technologies to like every power plant every major carbon source point in america like that's beyond not cost efficient it's beyond not time efficient it's just unrealistic and again with the combined impact of only being a 20 percent reduction and on top of that that we as we discussed up top the major current use of that captured co2 is recovery, is enhanced recovery, as they're talking about. It's the process, essentially, it's like fancy fracking, right? It's like the process of injecting that back into the partially spent oil wells, into the partially fracked areas under the Earth's surface, where it's just like potentially trying to grab much more of the methane and natural gases there. It really just feels like 
an efficiency for fossil fuels. Like it's, it's, it's like trying to squeeze, maybe even squeeze additional profit out of the existing wells and holes that these companies have invested in. So it really does feel like it's not just a, you know, it's a, it's a crutch to kind of keep on burning fossil fuels. And it's a really fancy fracking fluid, which is just disgusting when we think about this being sort of positioned as a solution. Yeah, I feel like it is. It's like we can't even say that it's a crutch uh, for us to burn more fossil. Like there, I feel like there's a lot of conversation around, you know, we can't just like turn on renewables. There's going to be some easing of, you know, the two technologies together. And some people are like, oh, well, we need to keep investing in fossil fuel infrastructure until we have the renewable infrastructure that we need. Like, no, this, this in particular, this solution in particular is just a massive waste of time. Like the impact of this is so small and it really, I mean, yeah, it's to me, it's like not even a crutch or a bandaid. It's just like, it's just greenwashing. almost. It's like the fossil fuel industry being like, no, 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 but we can, we can use all this expensive technology and resources to take a very small percentage of the carbon out of the burning fossil fuel process when actually there are many other forms of technology, including trees <laughs> that do that much more efficiently for a much lower cost with fewer risks and better positive outcomes. It's just, I don't know, this whole yeah. thing. No, I, I, does it happen overnight? At least is the timing of this like brilliant and perfect? No, let's let's go right to the next sort of crap point. Uh, carbon storage is just not ready for prime time. Speaking to the current state of safely storing carbon at a national scale, uh, Howard Herzog, who's a senior research engineer at the MIT Initiative uh, Energy Initiative, and he's the author of the book Carbon Capture, says, "quote We don't have storage experience on the scale we want to go to, but." we've demonstrated that you could do it correctly. (laughs) As a sort of like add on to that, the US Department of Energy says, quote, that they're still developing models that simulate the flow of stored carbon dioxide to help understand and predict chemical changes and effects of increased pressure that may occur, unquote. This is, as a shorthand, everything that activists who fight against fracking the practice of fracking are terrified of. You inject something into the fine layers of the Earth's crust, and terrible things could happen. We could have the uh, contamination of water tables. You could essentially trigger geological events, right? Things that are not earthquakes, but that have seismic outputs or seismic, you know, effects on areas. So. Really, we have no idea what the scale injection of this pure carbon would do to the biomes that we are injecting it to. Seems really dangerous. Yeah, you saying that there, there's, there's a quote, quote from Howard Herzog made me just wonder what Werner Herzog would. <laughs> What, what 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 would his narration be of this moment in time of this technology and his future documentary about the demise of industrialized capitalist society? Truly the horrors of trying to navigate our own technological demise have led to a sort of insanity where we take 
our own poison and inject it deeper into our hearts, confirming the nightmares of modern existence. (laughs) Sorry, I just happened to have a We just happened to have that. And then the next shot is the one lonely penguin, like, (laughs) running away. (laughs) David Attenborough. Oh, darling, I look at all these penguins running from the CO2 stream. Yeah, Do you know the part that I'm talking about in that movie? Oh my God, absolutely. It's like all these penguins and they're all going one direction except (laughs) one penguin. He's going the wrong way. And Werner Herzog's narration is like, you know, he's following his instinct, which will lead to certain death. Certain death, exactly. That's the most Herzog thing ever. Ah, But yeah, so basically like we don't know the actual long-term effects of storing this carbon. So I'd say that the technology is not ready on a time scale. Like we could be creating a massive problem that generations would have to fix after us. So I, I think that's like a pretty, pretty low blow, low grade for timing because we're just not ready. On the other end of the scale, look, the current cost of carbon is actually still too low. There's no incentive uh, for the energy or industry sectors of our economy to eat the costs of implementing this technology in the near future. Like definitely not in the next five to 10 years. Like there's no unified sort of like carbon tax or punishment for production that a system like this could actually kind of become cost neutral, maybe even cost effective, right? So with the current cost of carbon being too low and there's no real um, impetus for these industries to go off and make this change on their own, uh, I just don't see this change happening quickly. And of course, the cost of an uninhabitable planet does not even register for the people who would be implementing these technologies. So that cost is also a total moot point. Yes, a penguin walking off to its own demise. Yeah, totally. Um, And speaking of cost, like the reason I sort of came to the current cost of carbon being too low, in order to equip existing industry and electrical generation plants with CCS technology, the cost of the product being generated must increase if no sort of government or industry level subsidies are provided. So one report from the University of Utah site uh, sort of estimates a like 50 to 80% increase in the cost of electricity in order to pay for the implementation of CCS technology. So like kind of building on the point that carbon is kind of, it just costs nothing for a company to produce carbon. Seeing as we know that, that cost is too low, we know that the additional cost would have to be absorbed by that paying public, by us, um, or potentially through other corrective um, measures by the Fed or other national stimulus programs. There's currently no regulatory drivers in most places to incentivize or require the use of CCS. So the cost of equipment, materials, and the additional staff and processes that make this thing work, um, they're going to be prohibitively high. And we will likely kind of see that if, if this was like, again, magic wand scenario, we start implementing this thing. I think basically every American would see the type of utility rate increases that would like, I, I just think it would be impossible to swallow on a monthly basis. It just does not seem realistic from a cost perspective today. Um, so from cost and a timing perspective, I'm talking like middling to low, low, maybe even failing grades, especially in timing when it comes to the fact that like, we haven't even proved out the research of how dangerous injecting and storing this carbon could be. Wow. So we're at impact F, um, <laughs> D minus cost yeah. F. Yeah. It, do you have any X factors to say uh, this? Because I so far I'm leaning to trees. 
Yeah, I mean, you can stay on trees. Photosynthesis so far has like double backflipped over this entire technology. I do have a few X factors. I don't think any of them are going to really help too much. There's obviously like kind of like piggybacking off of that research uh, or the research being incomplete about carbon storage. Uh, accident rates for the actual transport of CO2 are relatively low, but the potential for a dangerous leak still exists. So this is not even a storage, this is just transporting the carbon to storage is an X factor. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, if CO2 were to leak from like a pipeline, uh, a concentration between seven and 10% in the ambient air could pose an immediate threat to human life. Uh, <laughs> imagine like a worst case scenario. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bhopal plant leak. Uh, this was a horrific thing that happened. It's not pure carbon, it was like a petrochemical leak, but essentially the worst case scenario is a dense gas rolling down the street, like carried on the on the wind that just settles into communities and kills everyone. <laughs> like the precedent, it, it, basically the precedent exists and it's horrifying. When major airborne gas leaks like this can happen with a potentially deadly gas, the effects are just it's it's times of war style devastation. It's really, really bad. So that's an X factor. We're introducing an incredible amount of risk in the communities that this type of system would pass through, this transport system would pass through. And then there's some like basic kind of environmental justice concerns. And I know that the conversation with environmentalists, environmentalism has shifted to justice. And so I do think these are X factors. EPA estimates that not all countries will have enough CO2 storage capacity to properly implement CCS. And so according to researchers at the Khalifa University of Science and Technology, they're calculating the exact capacities of different storage sites is still difficult. This means that the amount of CO2 storage capacity throughout the world is not certain. Scientists at MIT have estimated that the storage capacity for CO2 in the US is adequate for the next hundred years or so, if even safe but uncertainty remains about any time frame beyond that. So what I draw from this is that like, it's a bit neutral, like not too good, not too bad, because it's true that most countries will not have enough storage capacity to implement these systems. I see kind of a flip the script moment where it's like, the reality is the most powerful, large energy producing, polluting and landowning countries are the ones that have the most responsibility. So like, again, magic wand scenario, the US kind of like takes responsibility for itself and for its polluting ways and other countries like the US implement these systems and then store their kind of carbon domestically, like where the pollution is being created. However, I gotta sort of say, I don't trust the sort of, I don't know, the altruistic good of these countries, of these types of countries that are the major pollution producers. I do see that like, if we even approached a magic wand scenario where we were gonna start to like roll this technology out on mass, even in only the United States, I could see like a very NIMBY kind of culture springing up as an X factor, NIMBY not in my backyard. 
And the NIMBY thing here, I think, would take a look at the potential danger vectors of storage, the danger vectors of transport. And we would sort of start to see that I think the richest and most influential members of the population would push very hard to not have the carbon stored near their communities. Because the very risk of a gas leak on a Bhopal level or uh, a fracking style incident would store carbon under their feet would definitely devalue their community and their investments in that community. So I see a big natural NIMBY X factor here. And that could lead to some very serious environmental justice concerns where carbon is largely produced and then captured in communities where it has detrimental effects on health, detrimental effects on generational wealth, and really just creates a downward spiral for already marginalized communities in the United States and around the world. And yet... We know that the soils of the earth can store over 130 gigatons of carbon. Oh, last episode, regenerative agriculture. (laughs) That's right. And we need to get rid of 100. So look at that. Look at that solution (laughs) right there. And that that carbon you can soil in the earth in totally unproblematic, untoxic. But you're right. Let's spend a bunch of money extracting CO2, giving it back to fossil fuel companies so that they can extract more fossil fuels and burn them. And then we'll just put the CO2 in these underground wells that like, maybe they'll leak. Who knows? That's been totally safe before. So no big deal with that. Like, this is just not a good solution. Yeah. I I cannot, even as the researcher of this week, the deeper that I went, It was kind of like tugging at a string. It just, the whole thing unraveled. I really have to say that like between the cost and timing and lack of incentive to make the switch, we'd never hit even the most idealized 20% reduction. That's one problem all its own. But then to know that the majority of the use of that carbon that is captured is to essentially frack out more fuel or as an alternative, store it in potentially dangerous, transport and store it in potentially dangerous ways. I I was, it kind of went from like, oh yeah, cute technology by the fossil fuel industry. Like, hey, it does reduce some stuff, like C minus, like F you, like, I'm not going to like, you know, give you too much time. And I was like, oh yeah, like, it'll be fine. 20% is better than nothing. And then I read deeper and I'm like, oh man, like that's okay. We're going to like in D territory. And then the fact that it's like potentially like dangerous to human life and a producer of more fuels, I I do start to flirt with F. I know we're salty, but I just can't seem to find an angle where it's worth pursuing this. I'm going for like a fail, I think. Yeah, it feels like a pretty solid F to me. And I just want to be clear, I'm not being a Luddite about this. Yeah, it's not technology. Yeah, technology can be used for the good. Yeah, And we don't have to necessarily go you know, the untechnology way to fix the problem at all, even though trees are really good at fixing the problem. (laughs) Lobbying, a lobbyist of one for the trees. (laughs) I love it. Um, But yeah, this is, I just feels like a total F to me because the impact's not that great and it requires us to burn fossil fuels to institute the change. It's not even pretending to, uh, to move away from fossil fuels is just trying to make burning fossil fuels less bad. And the amount that it makes it less bad is very small. Yeah. And 
Well said. I just think that the amount of resources that's required to make it the less bad would be better spent in other technology uh, advances, other technological advances. Definitely. Definitely. I'm, I'm going to, I think we just are about to award our first ever F on yep. the solar spill solution season. So carbon capture and transport, you get a big flagrant F. <laughs> you have failed to be a solution. Wah, wah, wah. Oh, there's the horn section. <laughs> so from our, our lobbyist uh, for trees and now horn section, Susanna, I love it. Yep. Well, uh, we uh, this has been fun, trashing carbon capture and, and, and storage technology. Susanna, you're doing the research for the next episode. What are we going to talk about next time? Yeah, we're going to talk about transportation, which mm-hmm. is, you know, has the potential to be another one of those dicey, salty topics because... <laughs> You know, I think some of the some of the angles that we typically like to work around solutions are about reduced consumption and improved systems. And a lot of the transportation solutions say, let's just keep the exact same system we have now and we'll just make it less bad. And I don't know. It'll be fun to dig into it, see if that's really true. Awesome. Well, I'm very much looking forward to it. And uh, listeners, if you have any curiosity or interest in going solar, we are also here representing SunCommon. SunCommon is your trusted and renewable energy uh, partner in New York's Hudson Valley and the Capital Region. We're also all over Vermont. Uh, You can check us out at suncommon.com. And if you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions, angry rants about carbon capture technology, um, you can email us directly at solarspill at suncommon.com. We read all of the emails that come in. All right. And so for the Solar Spill, I'm Tavi. I'm Susanna. Thanks so much for listening.